0: Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB 506812, narrow casting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. 15th April, Thursday day was one of those perfect spring days. The air still had that edge of ice to it, but the day was filled with a thick syrupy warmth that was heavy with blossom and insects. And there was that light that you seem to only get in April. The flooded chalky palettes you find in the paintings of Croya and other Scandinavian artists The day and the season is as fresh and as sweet as spearmint chewing gum. This is Narrowboat 506812, narrowcasting across the crisp April night under the slither of a crescent moon that's hanging above an old oak tree. It's a night filled with duck call and sheep song. Welcome. And an especial welcome if you're finding things a little bit tough or difficult at the moment. There's always room for you here. John Clare, the 19th century peasant poet, might have painted March as a month of many weathers. Well, it also seems to be holding true for this past week. Twice we woke to snow falling, and each night has been below zero, sometimes getting as low as minus four. But the days have been crystal bright, and the sun has dulled the keen, scything northerly and easterly winds. And actually, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised, for if we were to turn to our Miles Hadfield's An English Almanac, and let's face it, who of us doesn't, then we'll find that he notes, The 11th to 14th of April comprise Buchan's second cold spell. Before he was discovered by the newspapers, it was called Blackthorn Winter. And a number of bad snowstorms and severe frosts have happened during the month, even after Easter has passed. And actually, to be honest, I don't even need to go as far as Miles Hadfield. Growing up, I remember Dad's yearly prognostications during early spring warmth, warning of a blackthorn winter on its way, still waiting to pounce on the young buds, both human and botanical. But then Hadfield also goes on to say that in our islands it is the gardening month, If, on a fine April evening, we look from the windows of a railway carriage as the train winds along one of those high embankments which so often span our dense suburbs, there is displayed below a scene of vast industry in the myriad gardens within sight. Hadfield is undoubtedly right, but gardeners do well to protect their seedlings at the moment. Mornings are decorated with a filigree lace, the whites of early spring. Some of the blackthorn have burst into blossom a second time, and the hawthorn leaves are bursting into emerald bud. Their sweet young leaves, called in an older time bread and cheese, and much loved by children and forager alike. And I found the first cornflower blue speedwell the other day, the Venus of the summer constellation of plants and the Salix down by the side of the canal are budding beneath their catkins, and the hedgerows are misted and emerald green and white. And in fact, while I was jotting down some notes under the cratch cover the other day, a wasp, the first of the season, joined me for a while. Lockdown restrictions were further eased on Monday, and the canal is seeing more traffic again on the towpath and water and a number of the higher boats have gone past us, framed under a glorious cloud canopy of cumulus castles and sunshine. I mentioned last week that our swans seem to have given up on their nest and their eggs. The pen that the female remained sitting, even though they had both nudged their five eggs out of the nest, and She persevered for a few more days, the eggs untouched, lying beside the nest, and then, just before we returned, they left, taking up their lives prior to the disruption and turmoil of nesting. On Thursday I watched them, picking through one of their earlier abandoned attempts at nests, a lone egg still undisturbed, sitting beside it. I don't think they were trying to rebuild it, and possibly were just foraging, picking at the broken and torn reed stems, the colour of straw in late summer gold. And actually, I was surprised at how long the discarded eggs lay untouched, lying like some scene from an abandoned game of bowls, And gradually, every couple of days, another was broken and eaten. Both swans are clearly young, and the female was still very young when we arrived last year, before the restrictions and the lockdown happened again. And then, for a month or two, she disappeared, only to return a few weeks later, just before winter began to bite, with a male partner. And at first it was difficult to distinguish the two of them, but now it's becoming easier as they're growing older and becoming more adult. And apparently their nesting behaviour is not that uncommon in juvenile swans. And I was told that the eggs are quite often infertile in the first year. Perhaps it's nature's way of providing a practice run. Two children playing house testing the waters, seeing how it's done, what works best. Two weeks ago, the first of our ducklings were born, six gruffy balls of fluffy feathers, bouncing like corks on the water's surface. It was a damp and grey world into which they were flung, and cold too. The water was of dull steel and choppy with a biting wind. And the ducklings scooted on the surface, fussed and scolded by their mother, and she had every reason to too. The swan had taken exception to their presence and was stabbing at them with its long, elegant neck. And I saw them later clustered in the shelter of one of the boat's sterns, affording a bit of protection from the wind and predatory eyes. And that was the last I saw of them. Early the next morning, in the post-dawn mist, a frantic female duck raced across the bank and the grass beside the water, yelping calls that hung unanswered in the air. All the caution left behind, Driven by an intense maternal instinct and urge. She walked or waddled straight up to me and then past Penny, seemingly blind to the danger that we could pose. Her partner trotted a little behind her, sometimes finding it difficult to keep up with her. She even ignored the Cray twins, the, the pair of feral domestic ducks that bully and torment the mallards and even they seemed to respectfully let her pass. Quacking, she tore through the undergrowth, calling out to her young ones, unanswered. If ever there was an image of being demented with fear and grief, this was it. It was as if her world had ended, and all the rules and norms of life no longer applied. And it was true, because for her, It had. That little bustling, frantic figure calling out into an unyielding sky has now merged into the rest of the community and is no longer visible. And perhaps there's no greater expression of our disconnect with the environment and our lives, I mean our real lives, than this because it feels wrong. Spring is meant to be about life, not loss and death. Or perhaps it's just that we can relate and identify with those feelings which that duck seemed to be expressing. But if something does not fill us with joy or that we're not happy, it feels as if something's broken in some way we've failed in life, when in truth we are all just like that dark on an April dawn, trying to find a way to make it through. And I am so aware that, for different reasons, some of you are struggling, and trying to find a way to simply stay afloat, and the cruelty of the thing is that so often these times can make us feel as if we have in some way failed, that it's our fault, that we're unable to cope, that there's something wrong with us, we're broken. And none of that's true. These times reflect the world in which we find ourselves, not us. It's what Kathleen Jamie says, the undamned rush of life. And our capacity to float and desire to remain afloat is what makes us human and alive. And as much as we greet spring with our open arms, spring can and does hold as many tears as winter. And it's also filled with winter's fears and loneliness. And if we are touched by those things from time to time, it's not our failure or things have not gone wrong. It's just life, that undamned rush of life. Thank you to everyone for sending your congratulations on my post that Nighttime on still Waters has passed the 3,000 download milestone. Nancy and Matthew and Pete and Wendy in particular. To be honest, I'm not quite sure if that's impressive or not, but I'm happy with it. I'm actually a bit conflicted about the whole kind of audience number thing. And regular listeners, you'll, you'll know that I find promotion and self-promotion really hard anyway. And I'm forever grateful to all of you who've been helping out in this area. But I also think that the... Main thing is always that you enjoy these times and they in some way touch a part of you and that I enjoy doing them and that we can enjoy these quiet gift of the night and that strange but valuable space that darkness affords. Finding that the night has a special kind of light to it and enables us to see things perhaps a little bit more clearly or a little bit more differently. And I also would just like to say hi to the NB wannabes, Amanda and Wayne and Wilma, regular listeners, who, by the time this is uploaded, will have already be joining us on the canals, the Grand Union at the moment. They're picking their boat up from Cape Boats um, at Stockton. So have a really, really good and enjoyable time. And also to Mark Dexter, another of our constant companions, as he was moored in his passenger ship off Tenerife, who is now back home for a well-deserved break or his well-deserved leave in Auckland. So again, have a really good time, Mark. Now get some rest. This morning I noticed the green shoots and tight globular buds of flowers of the elder by the towpath gate, and young rabbits taking the advantage of the clear sharp dawn. The rich yellow dandelion heads were still closed, waiting for the sun to climb and the air to warm. And there's a thickening green under the hedges, which is now becoming embroidered with the Chocolate wrapper purple of ground ivy. Robin run in the hedge. I love these local names. Vickery lists them. Bird's eye. Cat's foot. Hay maiden. Gill go to ground. Gill creep by the ground. Gill go by the ground. Gill run along the ground. Robin run up the Run away jack foot Vickery also notes that it's common gypsy cure for styes and other eye conditions. And this afternoon, in the heat of the sun, I saw for the first time this year the carp, their great snorkelling, hooverish mouths, sunning themselves in the shallows. The dawn temperatures are as cold as many of our winter nights, but spring has sprung. A few years ago I heard for the first time about isophenes and learnt something wonderful. Isophenes are those conceptual lines that link common events, and spring isophenes are magical, the first sightings of snowdrops. Crocuses, daffodils, blackthorn blossom, frog spawn, cuckoo calls. These isophenes are visually charted now so beautifully on social media posts. And you can not only chart the chronological progress of spring, but geographical progress as well. With localised and regional differences aside, you can see each wave of spring lapping up the country, south to north. Each successive wave of colour, sound and scent. And you know what is so truly wonderful? Spring makes its journey at our pace. Spring travels up the country at four to five miles an hour. I once used to dream that one day I would walk the spine of Britain as a surfer riding spring's green-crested wave. And this time last year in lockdown and restricted to a house in which neither of us felt at home, that craving was almost unbearable. And this year I am content to watch each wave of life and energy wash over us. Four to five miles per hour is probably a little too fast for a narrowboat to keep up with anyway. And in 1913, the poet and writer Edward Thomas, battling with his own struggles of mental health, marooned in London, away from his wife and family, who loved him dearly, but to whom he seemed to have difficulty relating. He cycled west in pursuit of spring. His desire to hunt spring is something I can totally understand. But I came across Helen Thomas's writings in her autobiography. And she writes about spring so lyrically and beautiful. She clearly loves it. And it's made me think that perhaps he was pursuing and wanting to connect with something more than just warmth and light. Thomas beautifully and evocatively records this journey in his book The Pursuit to Spring, published a year later in nineteen fourteen, beginning of the the Great War. And he starts the book with this explanation. This is the record of a journey from London to the Quantock Hills, to Nether Stowey, Kilve, Crocombe, and West Bagborough, to the high point where the Taunton Bridgewater Road tops the hills and shows all Exmoor behind, all the Mendips before, and upon the left the sea and Wales very far off. It was a journey on or with a bicycle. His account contains many beautiful passages, far too many for me to to read out here now, but I do aim to read some because they're just far too good not to share. But he finishes his book and his final chapter is titled The Grave of Winter. And he writes, as he reaches the Quantocks and looks down at the Bristol Channel below, that he has found spring. And he writes, Turning to the left again when the signpost declared its seven and three-quarter miles to Bridgewater, I found myself on a glorious sunlit road without hedge, bank or fence on either side. Proceeding through fern, gorse and ash-trees scattered over the mossy slopes. Down the slopes I looked across the flat valley to the Mendips and Brent Knoll, and to the steep and flat homes, resting like clouds on a pale, cloudy sea. And what is more, through a low-arched rainbow I saw the blueness of the hills of South Wales, The sun had both dried the turf and warmed it. The million gorse petals seemed to be flames sown by the sun. And by the side of the road were the first bluebells and cowslips. They were not growing there, but some child had gathered them below at Stowey or Durley, and then, getting tired of them, had dropped them, They were beginning to wilt. But they lay upon the grave of winter. I was quite sure of that. Winter may rise up through mould alive with violets and primroses and daffodils, but when cowslips and bluebells have grown over his grave, he cannot rise again. He is dead and rotten. "'and from his ashes the blossoms are springing. "'Therefore I was very glad to see them. "'Even to have seen them on a railway station seat in the rain "'brought from far off on an Easter Monday would have been something. "'But here, in the sun, "'they were as if they had been fragments "'fallen out of that rainbow over against Wales. "'I had found winter's grave. I had found spring, and I was confident that I could ride home again and find spring all along the road. Perhaps I should hear the cuckoo by the time I was again at Avon, and see cowslips, tall on ditch sides, and short on chalk slopes, bluebells in hazel copses, Orchises everywhere in lengthening grass and flowers of rosemary and crown imperial in cottage gardens and in the streets of London, cowslips, bluebells and the unflower-like yellow-green spurge. Thus I leapt over April and into May. As I sat in the sun on the north side of Cothelstone Hill, on that 28th day of March, the last day of my journey westward to find spring. And may you all find your springs too. This is Narrowboat Erica signing off for the night and wishing you the very best and peaceful and restful nights. Good night. Temperature outside three point six degrees, inside twenty five degrees, humidity forty four per cent, dew point minus two degrees, wind direction. East. Wind strength. Two miles per hour. Barometric pressure. One thousand and twenty seven point one. Steady. Cloud cover. Ten percent. Cloud ceiling. Nil. Precipitation. Nil. Moon phase, 27.1%. Waxing crescent. Day length, 14 hours, 3 minutes. Sunset, 20.08. Skycasting, 6.02. 6.02.